this is a virtual episode mainly because I'm kind of stuffy, so apologies. We've split it up. Make sure we're all COVID safe. Mark safe from Michael and his sickness. Today, we have a special episode only because it harkens back to the halcyon days of when we were getting responses from famous atheists like Paula Gia. If you know, some of our most viewed videos, at least to this date, are two responses to an atheist YouTuber called Paula Gia, a play on the word apologia, um, which is defense, defense of the faith. And he's, his original video that we did a response to, and then he responded to our response to his response, um, was on the gospel. And what kind of basic story about the gospel could be verifiably, factually, factually true and still mean that Jesus was not actually raised from the dead, that, that his events were not actually true. And it heavily relied on a assumption by um, scholars these days that only seven of Paul's letters were actually written by Paul and that the entirety of the gospel canon and that all the rest of the epistles like first Peter or John or whatever or some of the the, the disputed letters of Paul that those are actually pseudographical they're not actually written by contemporary authors and there's some later date and therefore should be thrown in the trash can of course we entirely disagree with that point of view. Paul Agia's uh, attempt was to say that we only know the very, very, very basic minimum about Peter and Paul, and everybody else is unnamed and an eyewitness, and therefore it doesn't count. And therefore, we only know that Peter was a man who was an apostle of Jesus, and therefore would have seen him. And so if it's just him, if we don't have any other like details around his life, perhaps he had a post-bereavement um, hallucination and hallucinated the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, and then he went spreading some type of gospel out, and that Paul, equally, had some sort of post-bereavement stress-induced uh, delusion in seeing Christ, and that Paul then went and spread the Christian message based off of maybe what Peter was saying, but else it's all vague and illusory because we only have seven letters from Paul and you don't have all the details that you would naturally find in all the Gospels or Acts or the rest of the places where regular Christians would turn to to point to the story and the history of how the Gospel spread. So as frustrating as that is because the, the basic facts at hand are the things that are being questioned, so you can't point to the facts to say, to, to, to use proof because the question is what are the basic facts we've done a episode on the seven undisputed letters of paul and why they are um, a dumb category um, it's a scholarly attempt to discredit christianity it's not a it's not an accurate um, honest scholarly take on the text um, it's plainly based on theology they find in the seven letters of paul what they don't find in other letters and they assume things about the text that it was early um, in any case We've already done a video on that, but we wanted to take this approach. And Theodore, maybe you can give a premise as to what we're doing with this episode. Yeah. So, uh, atheists obviously have objections to Christianity, like Apologia. And one of those is the reliability and historicity of the Christian scriptures. However, it happens to be agreed upon by the majority of Christian and non-Christian scholars that a certain seven books of the New Testament were indeed written by Paul, who identifies himself as a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, um, from Philippians, uh, which is one of the seven undisputed letters. Thus, they are often cited as the uh, seven undisputed epistles of Paul. So in this episode, we're going to neglect the rest of Scripture to see what we can glean from these letters from Paul to various churches. And I would argue if 
we had only these letters, we'd be fine since there's more than enough info and more than enough gospel in them. Um, but as Christians, we know there is even more that is trustworthy and true in the Bible, and therefore more than more than enough gospel to go around, which is why we are here trying to bring that info to you. Right. So we would never, as Christians, never ignore the rest of Scripture. And so we shouldn't take uh, an atheist playbook and say we can only trust these seven letters because we can assuredly trust the entire New Testament. However, to play Apologia's game and look at his own sinking ship and answer the fool by his folly, let's take a look at his logic. And when he only takes seven letters, does his version of the gospel, um, his his suggested version of how the gospel could have spread without Jesus actually having been resurrected, is it consistent with the seven undisputed letters that he's supposedly quoting from to make it. So um, I'll start with you, Sebastian. Do you have a book of the Bible you want to examine and show us what we can glean from it? One of these seven undisputed letters. Yes, one of them would be the first Thessalonians. And it's one of the one of the earliest supposedly letters of Paul, primarily because he went first in, in Acts. We want to take acts or, or not. Mm-hmm. We want first this th- city of Thessalonica, and hence so would be would have been one of the first churches founded. And right away, you have a mention of Timothy, which is we get from this. It's the same Timothy that's been accompanying all his journeys. And right. So references to characters. Church. Right. It's not just um, uh, an epistle with no with no reference to real people. Exactly. And the letters they do conclude with people being greeted at the end, you know, said, thank you. So clearly there's a relationship going on there. Now, what I find very, very interesting is primarily a personal personal interest of mine is right in the beginning, you see in the introduction to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, right away, you see you have the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, who we call the Son, the Word of God. By this, by attributing the word Lord in Greek, kurios, which is what in the Septuagint, the Old Testament in Greek, would have had as the name, the holy name, Yahweh, he is giving equivalency of God to Jesus Christ. Again, Jesus Christ is God. We take that for granted as Christians. Important to see here if we're just basing our theology in this letter. And also, we have another character from the Godhead introduced here in verse 6. You became imitators of us, and in you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. So right right here, you see already the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit just in this letter, and to mention. There's an allusion, and there's an allusion to the resurrection and also being born again. Again, common themes that we use in our Christian lingo today. So, with the resurrection, ah, Jesus Christ first. For we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not perceive those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven 
with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. There's a lot here. Mm -hmm. Really quickly. Jesus Christ died, rose again. Christianity 101. Number two, people are dying, and they are with the Lord Jesus. And Jesus will come again with his people. I would say we can gather these yeah, basic facts. From, I think that's pretty undisputable. And so not only are you getting some basic Christian doctrine here, you're already saying resurrection, the death of Jesus, so another historical fact that Paul is referring to, and then the Trinity. But I think notable is that he's not really arguing for these. These are just side comments and descriptors of what's what's going on. So he's not writing the letter to argue for these, meaning that they're already established beliefs of the Christian church. If he's not arguing for them, he's not arguing for the Trinity. He's not arguing for Christ's resurrection. He's stating it. He's restating it, but it's not. Yeah. yeah. So now something very, very important to take away from this is also salvation. In chapter in, in chapter 5, verse 9, it says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that, whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Two things. Two things right there. Concept of wrath and salvation. Actually, and obviously he died, but we already went through it and then resurrected he took away God's wrath. Okay. Old Testament. This is this is a tie into the Old Testament again. You cannot be a Christian without uh, the Old Testament. As I always like to as I always like to say, Jesus Christ came as fulfillment of the Old Testament to take away God's wrath on our sinners, so that we may have salvation through Him, through His death. And now we have been transitioned from being under the wrath of God to have peace with God. Therefore, it's a continuous encourage one another, build each other up. We can build each other up because now we have peace with God. We have a relationship with God. Hence, now we can work on establishing, building the kingdom, helping one another out. Right. So a lot of basic Christian truth here. Again, exposited in an undisputed letter of Paul, meaning not only was his teaching orthodox and some of the attacks in the church that weren't from apology in particular but just some of the attacks on the church early that's that say that like the trinity wasn't a thing in the early church and it was hoisted on the church later or that um, the resurrection was never thought to be literal um, we would dispute those now as far as apologia and his version of the gospel what we have confirmed at least through this is that paul references um, Jesus's death and resurrection. So the, the gospel message or whatever that would have been going out would have included that, presumably. And then equally, that Paul himself um, is an apostle. So, and that he's going out and finding churches himself. He references other real people, Timothy and others like that. So he seems to be in the midst of an already established church furthering its establishment as opposed to going off on his own rogue self and establishing his own church that doesn't have any prior um, attendance or, or believers which would there's be, a sense of continuity yeah which is it, it would be odd so apologia's version of events is that par- perhaps always perhaps because he'd never stand on two feet and say something um absolute uh perhaps peter started some movement that paul piggybacked off of um but i would i would exposit that that the verses referencing timothy and the churches are clearly um paul entering a movement that's already going and so he's not pioneering a fringe 
Eastern movement. He's really he's, he's spreading, no, no doubt he's spreading, but he's, he's pushing a already established um, religious order to the ends of the earth. Which is not the same picture that Apology would give. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So that was all from which book, Sebastian? Thessalonians? First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. And what about uh, another one? Do you have another one? I do. I have from Philemon. This will be a breeze. It is extremely short, very tiny letter. It is, in summary, a, one of Paul's friends, again, showing connection with real people. So Paul is now in jail, it's many years later, and one of his friends, Philemon, had a slave who ran away and potentially stole things, so, you know, caused trouble at home, hence why he's running away to Paul. Once he met Paul and was helping him while he was in jail, giving him food, you know, all that comfort that you might get while you're in jail, he became a Christian. So now Paul is saying to Onesimus, which is the name of the slave, go back to your master and then to the master with sending this letter, don't beat him up, treat him like a brother in Christ, treat him as you would treat me. So what I get from this, number one, he's assuming everyone involved here is a Christian. Like there's no, I'm not trying to convert you, Philemon, I'm not converting Onesimus on the way as I'm sending you there. Like we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a lot of lingo that's Christianese, if you want to call it. So right. a lot of things are being assumed. So Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and, and Timothy, our brother, again, Timothy, one of his companions. He says to Philemon, and he greets his wife, Athia, and Archipo, our fellow soldier, would have been another leader of the church at the time. Again, an established movement. These are people he knows. Mm-hmm. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, equivalency of Jesus Christ with God, Kudios, Yahweh, with the Old Testament. And here, I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Sign of trust, relationship, you know, there's some partnership in there. And from verse 15 and 16, this is the last thing I want to highlight because, again, it's just very short. Perhaps the reason he was separate, unless I'm mostly slave, he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. I This stood out to me because there's a sign here of being born again. Right. You were something before, you were useless. And it's a play with words, Onesimus in Greek is useful. So he says, you were, Onesimus was useless, but now he is useful. And now he's no longer a slave to you, but rather treat him as a brother, as a fellow Christian. Change, transformation, being born again in Christ. Something happened. You were not a Christian before, now you're a Christian. Something has changed in your whole being. So I take this, you know, again, a lot of a lot of assumptions here that everyone is a Christian, so there's not much theology being discussed, but that really stood out to me. And then at the very end, he concludes a citing names, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and also to Mark, Aristarchos, Demas, and Lucas, my fellow workers, people he knows, people that Philemon would know. This is an established movement, Mm -hmm. not just some strangers sending things to each other. Right. Yep. 
So established movement, real people um, familiar with with Christianity. It's not a it's not a hoax document that Paul would have been putting out so that others would learn about Christianity. It was a real genuine letter with subtle references to Christ's deity, right, and also uh, transformation after becoming a Christian. All right, so consistent with modern day Christianity, that is to say, it's not some mm-hmm. spooky hidden letter or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, Theodore, how about you? Do you have any books under your belt? Oh, by golly, I sure do. Good. I'm glad. Um, his letter to the Galatians. Um, even the first few verses, um, Galatians chapter 1, 3 to 4. Um, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. (laughs) So even in that, um, you see that Jesus gave himself for our sins to rescue us, and it was according to the will of the Father, or God the Father. Um, And in verse 12, um, we see that uh, the source um, where Paul got his info, For I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed to me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So here's a claim of him having Jesus Christ revealed, which Apologia admits is a claim of Paul, and he says it was probably post-bereavement, but in any case, that's what you gather from Galatians. (laughs) And then uh, chapter 2, verse 16 we see uh, the theme that we're not justified by works, but justified by faith. Um, and as it says here, this is the NRSV, uh, by the way. Just the thing I have right now. Yet we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Jesus Christ so that we might be justified by faith in Christ. And not by doing works of the law, because no one will be justified by works of the law. But if, in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Um, and I do not, well, yeah. So not only is that the whole death to life, baptism, uh, live and die thing, which Jesus himself says in the Gospels. So I, side note, I think you'll, you'll notice in some of our comments is that there are portions from these these letters, these epistles, these undisputed epistles that end up being motifed, at least in the Gospels and in Apologia and other scholars, so, so-called scholars' opinions, Paul's letters come before the Gospels because the Gospels are actually later amalgamations and, and edits and transformations of uh, oral tradition about Jesus from a source that's not available today. Q source is usually what they call it. Of course, we don't believe that, but 
Um, you'll see some of these motifs that Paul talks about repeated in the Gospels. So at the very least, Apology and other, again, quote-unquote scholars would have to say is that these motifs um, were around, right? These oral teachings of Jesus were around and influencing Paul at his time when he wrote the letters. So the invention of Jesus's um, works on earth are developed. I think we could definitively say they're developed at this time that Paul was writing. We would, I would claim that these Gospels, um, the exception of uh, perhaps Luke and John, had already been written and were possibly being distributed by Paul's time. So, and Luke was being written, I would say. In any case, that's disputed by them. We would say that motifs found in the Gospels are also found in Paul's teachings, not just motifs, but specifics. Um, so that shows that the Gospels are... Um, are synchronized with what Paul is saying. Paul is not going off on a different theology than the Gospels have. And actually the very next verse that I should have read was, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. And obviously that's a pretty powerful statement. Mm -hmm. It's also just alluding to basic facts here. Crucifixion, that Christ was right. crucified and that he died. So some basic historical facts that it's pushing as well. Okay, and then I'll skip over some. And then I thought this was kind of nifty the way uh, Paul wrote this or had this written. Um, a Calvinist might find it interesting Galatians 4, 9. Um, now, however, that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to a weak and beg beggarly elemental spirits? <laughs> Whatever, he was just chastising them. But the way he uh, phrased that, um, he basically put it, uh, mentioning how they have not come to know God on their own, but rather God has come to know them. Right, like uh, emphasizing that it's a God act rather than a man act. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then Galatians 5 gets into some really clear teaching on like evil deeds versus good deeds or the fruits of the Spirit. Should I read those verses or? If you think it's relevant. Sure. This is just good basic uh, teaching for Christians. Um, now the works of the flesh, which we are to abstain from, are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I'm warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. There's a reference there, again, to whom? To the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, and who is mm. the Spirit of God. It's not our own spirit. It would say it is the spirit of God that is within us, transforming us into the likeness of Christ who died for us. So again, this is all 
these these are all assumed language, I would say, except for the part about the works of the law. But everything else is pretty much, I would say, assumed by the by the churches he's writing to. Mm -hmm. And it looks like we're losing Theodore. Theodore, I'm going to come back to you, but let me also step in with some of my own books. So I've got. Uh... I'm back. Oh, you're back. All right. You want to you want to keep sharing then? I just have one more verse for Galatians. Go ahead. <laughs> um, it says so that or Galatians chapter six, the uh, last chapter, verse ten. So then, whenever we have an opportunity, let us work for the good of all, and especially for those of the family of faith. So just a nice positive declaration declaration that basically says Christians are not against anybody, and so far as we have the opportunity, we are to work for the good and for peace and whatever for all, but especially our brothers and sisters, our family in faith, brothers in Christ. Right. In Christ. Um, do you want me to go on to Philippians or? Sure, go right on ahead. So we've established okay. from the books, uh, First Thessalonians and uh, Philemon that, that Sebastian talked about, we established that uh, the Trinity is a Christian concept. We've got some other like death to life motifs um, we've got the crucifixion from, from Galatians. We've got the fact that Paul is a Hebrew. You alluded to that in our opening, but you're going to talk about it here in Philippians as well. And we've got that uh, this is an established church. It has real people in it. They're in real places like Thessalonica and other places like that. And it seems to have been established prior to Paul, and Paul is also pushing it out. So it's a gospel message that has gone out, um, which is not consistent with the way Paul Apologia from Apologia describes how Paul would have taken um, this possible message from Peter about Jesus Christ. Paul is instead going into an established religion and uh, talking about things that people were already familiar with and fleshing them out. So he was not, um, he was a driving force of spreading the gospel, but he wasn't a creator of the gospel. It was already a gospel created. In any case, you can keep going, Theodore, with Philippians. What can you derive from Philippians about Christian teachings? Well, this one, I'll start with uh, Philippians chapter 2. I'll read. All right, we're going, we're losing Theodore in and out. So I'm going to start my section. We both split up all of the different seven undisputed letters of Paul. So I'll give my thoughts on three of the undisputed letters of Paul, starting with 1 Corinthians. So I split 1 Corinthians, what you can gather from it, into seven different points. First one, and again, these are supposed to be not only a mix of Christian beliefs uh, that are clearly early, if they're part of the Undisputed Letters of Paul, but also Christian facts, facts that you can establish, at least that Paul was claiming, about um, the spread of the gospel and the people that were involved. And so they help establish some story and framework around how the early gospel spread, even if you don't believe Acts or the Gospels. The first one uh, that you can gather from 1 Corinthians is that believers are indwelt by the Spirit of God. Trinitarian, again, classic uh, Christian doctrine that's being established again in 1 Corinthians. Uh, also, 1 Corinthians has that Paul saw Jesus. He claims to have seen Jesus. So this is where we get the claim that Paul saw Jesus. You'll notice um, because Apologia can't really get any sort of story to work without some of the details from Acts, he does borrow from Acts and says that... Um, Paul claims to have seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, um, etc. But again, those are only found in Acts. He instead just claims to have seen Jesus in these seven undisputed letters. Um, so that's a fact. But in any case, Paul claims to have seen Jesus. So that's um, at least consistent with the fact that he had a vision. 
3, uh, he references other co-equal apostles, Jesus's brothers. He calls a guy named Cephas, who would be Peter, just the, the other word for Peter, rock. And so he references these other co-equal apostles. Again, I would assert that that shows not only that Peter was not the only man involved, um, but also that Paul himself didn't consider himself above the other apostles. He was just another apostle, which is going against the picture that Paulogia paints, which is that there's only one named um, first-hand source that, that knew Jesus, and that was Cephas. Well, first of all, the seven undisputed letters don't even say that. Right, they call him an apostle. They call Cephas an apostle, which we can assume means that he was a first-hand witness. But we don't even know that from these. Um, but two, he claims that there are other apostles, twelve other apostles, Cephas and uh, and um, other brothers and apostles in the faith, including himself. And so he's not claiming to be a pioneer, nor is he claiming that there are others that could correct him. He claims that there are churches that have already been established. Um, for example, here's another point. Um, Jerusalem is not founded by Paul, so he founds other churches, but not Jerusalem. It's already an existing church, which would be consistent with the Gospels, be consistent with Acts, wouldn't be consistent with Paulogia's vision, because Paulogia says that Peter is a one-man show spreading this around. Um, be strange that a whole church would be founded by Peter, and that Peter's movement would really fizzle out, and that Paul's would take over, um, whereas it seems like Paul is clearly piggybacking again off of an already established church. Equally, there's a network of churches that already exist. Some of them had by Paul and some of them not. He mentions um, a bunch. So Paul had been spreading this and that it had established believers in different places. So it wasn't Paul's writings being taken out of context years later that other people picked up on. There were active churches alive that day. He mentions Galatia, Jerusalem, Macedonia, Ephesus, Asia, Achaia, um, and the list goes on. So he had a lot of churches in reference, cities in reference that are verifiable and had many members in them. So his movement was not isolated. Equally, he references, like we'd said in some of the others, according to the scriptures. He says Jesus was raised from the dead according to the scriptures, referring to the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. And so this belief was not unfounded. It wasn't supposed to be new or break, but it was supposed to be a continuation of Judaism. Not that that was disputed by Apologia, but that is what the movement is supposed to be. And then uh, he also references Jesus' resurrection and our promised resurrection. So not only did Jesus die, Paul claims, but also he was raised from the dead again. So standard Christian belief, but we're just asserting that it is found in these undisputed letters. In 2 Corinthians, more of the same. So I have five points for 2 Corinthians. Jesus is called God. He's called Son of God. And it says, God did not become yes or no, as Jesus Christ did not become yes or no. You need context to understand that. But in any case, he's referring to Jesus being equivalent to God, um, which is something that some people say is like a later development. In any case, G uh, Paul has it here. In fact, Usually these seven undisputed letters are picked. One of the one of the reasons they're picked is that they don't have advanced, quote unquote, advanced theology that's against Gnosticism. Um, but this is still present. So this advanced theology that some would claim that Jesus is God is present here in Second Corinthians. Paul claims to be well known in Second Corinthians. So yes, he does know that he's well known. He's claimed to be well known. So that's in line with Apologia claiming that he's some sort of big shot. However, he's well known amongst other apostles, and he's persecuted on several occasions, stoned to death, shipwrecked, lashed. He is not somebody that has his easy way of life and that he's super respected um, and, and loved everywhere he goes. He is persecuted in many places, especially by the Jews, and that he also has um, false prophets who are trying to steal his glory in Second Corinthians. So other people are trying to steal his glory. They're also trying to steal the money that's going to the church, which is just another example of how, that the church was alive and well during Paul's time, that was sending money to each other, large sums of money, large enough that it was hard for the church of Macedonia to give it, but they did it anyways. Um, that's established here in Second Corinthians. And it's not... Um, it's in passing in a way that I would say shows 
good support for it actually being the case that the church was alive and giving money and needing money on different ends. And then lastly, he closes with the Trinitarian thought, again showing the Trinity is a, is a natural and early Christian belief. And then lastly, Romans, which is a huge book. It has a great theological significance. So just as far as being a Christian document, very good that Romans is considered undisputed and that we could just have these seven and be fine. Um, but I won't get into all the nitty gritty of all the different theology in Romans because it's very large. All I want to establish is four facts that, that Romans um, shows were part of early Christian belief. And that is one, that Paul traveled around the Eastern Mediterranean. He talks about that. He talks about different cities that he visited there. Two, that the fulfillment of the Jewish law is in Jesus Christ, the continuation of the Old Testament into the New Testament. Three, that Paul had not yet come to Rome, so this wasn't a Roman religion. Um, it ends up being Roman in the West, but we, as we've talked about in this podcast many times before, the movement spreads to the East, to the Persians, past the Persians, to India, to Ethiopia, to the Scythian tribes. Um, it travels all around the world, so it is not a Roman religion. It's not a push-by-Rome religion. Rome ends up pushing it, but it also um, survives in, in many other places. Um, and then lastly, original and universal sin are both defended and clarified in Romans 1 and 2. So we would say those are things defended. And of course, with universal sin, with the resurrection that comes in Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ's payment for sin, with the election of his elect that come to believe in him, all of that is established in these seven undisputed letters. The basics of Christianity, that Jesus died and rose again, that he's God, that we need forgiveness for sin against God, and that we get it through Jesus Christ is all established in these seven letters. So not only is basic Christian belief established, but also there are many holes poked in uh, apologies base explanation that um, Peter and Paul were somehow disconnected and that Peter must have uh, said some sort of message that Paul was familiar with and that Paul was really the pusher of Christianity. I know that's a, a common scholarly way to put things, but it's just not backed up by even just these seven undisputed letters, let alone Acts, let alone the Gospels. So I'll leave it to you, uh, Theodore, to wrap us up with Philippians now that you're back. Let's hope uh, this stays. <clears throat> what were you able to hear? Or nothing? Nothing at all. We start just over. start from the very top. Yep. All right. Um, Philippians 2, 3. Um, well, I'll just start from here. Blah, 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 Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave or servant, being born in human likeness and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Um, so there's once again, me. yeah, there's once again, crucifixion, Jesus was a man, also God, the God man, all that's established in Philippians as well. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my uh, brothers, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So our standard Christian doctrine established in Philippians, that every good thing we do is through God and by God, and that we should uh, work on our salvation in fear and trembling. So they call it do good works.
And another thing about uh, uh, the power of faith and resurrection. He talks about his work saying, quote, I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, uh, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings um, by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead as well. And let's go to verse 16. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained, a.k.a. the, or, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, then this talks about basically hell. Uh, brothers and sisters, live according to the example you have in us for many live as enemies of the cross of christ i have often told you of them and now i tell you even with tears their end is destruction their god is the belly and the, their glory is in their shame their minds are set on earthly things but our citizenship is in heaven and it is from there that we are expecting a savior the lord jesus christ he will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself so we have the lordship of jesus we got the damnation of sinners and we've got um hope in heaven and the resurrection yes let me before we go on on this one though first notice this subtle attack on what will be known as Gnosticism because they're going to claim, yes, Jesus never came with a body and bodies are bad. This one is, we're going to get bodies. They're just going to be perfected bodies. Right. In God's kingdom. Which again, usually these epistles are pictured out, singled out to exclude the verses that are more anti-Gnostic because the assumption is that, uh, that if they're anti-Gnostic, they must be um, attacking Gnostics specifically who didn't come about until later. And so um, this shows that this motif and insistence on the body being physical is uh, something in the all agreed upon early letters. Of course, we as faithful Christians would say all of them are early, not late, considering that they were all from Paul. We wouldn't say they're pseudographical, but even if you do believe they're pseudographical, um, there's still these refutations against um, Gnostic-esque beliefs. And then the last excerpt will just be uh, speaking of the Lord being near for us to pray and let our requests be known to God um, and more basically advice to Christians on how to think and act. Um, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence and if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Amen.
that about sums it up. All right. Well, you've heard then from all three of us, seven different letters examined pretty closely, showing all their different beliefs or points to be pulled from them. Not only, I think you can establish from just hearing us talk, are there all the basic tenets of Christianity, but also some of the basic facts that Apologia does not does not rightfully represent in his version of the Gospels. Um, I would say that his version of the Gospels don't take into account the actual facts talked about in these seven undisputed letters, nor the tone of which they put. They don't reflect the same reality that these seven letters do. They obviously don't at all reflect the reality if you take into account the rest of Paul's letters or Acts or the Gospels. He twists things that don't actually exist. His version of the Gospel is not congruent or um, in line with not only the claims of these letters, but also the facts these letters claim about. So, of course, they don't, he's an atheist who doesn't agree that Jesus actually rose from the dead. So we understand he's going to refute that claim. But he also just creates a scenario that it doesn't reflect the claims of the book that aren't religious, right? That there are um, seeds of other believers at the time, that there's other uh, churches that had already been established, and that Paul was just one of many apostles and the rest. And the same with Peter. So those facts hurt Apologia's case, which is kind of a strange, rare um, scenario anyways. But... For the much more common attack on Christianity, which says that Christianity is a later invention, that the theology develops over time um, seriously, and that um, core Christian doctrine like the Trinity or salvation by faith alone or the death of Christ or the physicality of the coming of Christ, um, that those things are later inventions are also refuted by looking at these undisputed early letters of Paul. Um, my last thought myself, although you guys comment, is to say that Christians should not abandon the rest of the Bible. So this episode should not be an encouragement to only share seven undisputed letters of Paul with your atheist friends. Because um, first of all, most atheists don't even know about this um, strange, messed up scholarly opinion that only seven of them are undisputed. But secondarily, um, it's they... It, even if your atheist friend does know that there's this opinion that only seven of them are undisputed, um, we should use the whole of Scripture as a sword to cut the atheist. Because in truth, Scripture is true. And so if it is true, it's going to stand true regardless of what the atheist believes about it. So if you were in a sword fight, we say this before, it's not for me, I think it's from Footy Balcom or others um, who say that if you were in a sword fight with another fighter and he claimed that your sword was not real... How would you prove to him your sword is real? Would you try to argue that your sword is real and show him all its curves and how it glints in the light, or would you cut him? And we say we should cut him. So if you have an atheist that doesn't believe in the rest of the letters of Paul, or doesn't believe in the rest of the Bible, we should use it anyways and cut the atheist that he sees truth and comes to Christ. Because ultimately, that's why we have found our cause in serving that very Lord Jesus Christ. Is there any closing comments you men want to make about these letters or about today's discussion? As you read the scriptures, I think you were... You will, especially in the New Testament, of course, you're going to find these motifs, these themes shared across all of the letters. Some are going to be more, you know, just a quick mention. Some are going to be a dramatic exposition, like the Epistle to the Romans, very deep and well thought out, or Hebrews, for example. Mm -hmm. But the, re the reason we see that is because the writers may have been different, but the author is the one and only, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God himself. And there's beauty in that. I mentioned that because in one of our last reaction videos, we saw that the, the, the Universalist was claiming that you shouldn't take the whole Bible together. You sh they were not never meant to be read as a, right. you know, put together. But rather, you're going to see that these different themes that we just went over are going to be found across the scripture. And I think that's beautiful. I think that enhances the, the message and the reliability of the New Testament, despite being written by different people. 
at different locations. Well, and you will hear, like I, I would testify that the the differences you find in the epistles uh, reflect the fact that it really was written by multiple authors, which is a great way of keeping the book on sullied by some human invention or even the theories that it was created by some council are ridiculous because they're from two disparate and uh, and different sources however they're also unified like you're saying sebastian on message a atheists and scholars again quote unquote from every sort will uh, vilify books of the bible for being one too similar to each other like second thessalonians is too similar to first thessalonians and therefore can't be can't be true um, and equally they'll say oh the gospels are too similar to each other um so they must have been copying each other. But then they'll point at like First um, and Second Timothy and say, oh, they're too different from Paul's other letters. So they can't be Paul. So but they want their cake and they want to eat it too. If they're similar enough, um, then they must be copies of each other and not real. Or if they're too different from each other, they must be pseudographical and not real. So um, we would say that the Gospels are similar in that they've been written, by, like you said, by the Spirit of God, or sometimes with the same author, um, like Paul or somebody. Um, but also different enough to show that they are from a, a vast array of different sources, which is a better way of passing along any tradition than being controlled by one man or one publishing group. So we testify to scripture's um, preservation by God and its authorship by God. Theodore, any closing comments yourself? Uh, do we want to do a bonus first? I kind of forgot about this. Sure, it throw mentions it in. We'll end it with it. other acknowledged pillars. Like in Philippians, he mentions bishops and deacons and right. stuff like that. Um, but then here, um, it says, Just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel for the circumcised, for he uh, who worked through Peter, making him an apostle to the circumcised, also worked through me in sending me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, or Peter, and John, who were acknowledged pillars, recognized the grace that had been given to me, they gave to Barnabas and me the right hand of fellowship, agreeing that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They asked only one thing, that we remember the poor, which was actually what I was eager to do. But when Cephas, or Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for the fear of the circumcision faction or group of people. And the other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not acting consistently with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Etc. Uh, Etc. Et Indeed, and that... so it basically recognizes those leaders, mm -hmm. but also that not one of them is necessarily infallible or right. over them all to direct them all. And again, it names, it names a bunch of named leaders, and some of them would have supposedly seen. Uh, the Lord Jesus um, on earth. So the John, Peter, Barnabas, others, James, the brother of Jesus. So uh, apology is minute again, trying to make the minimum possible story that only has one guy, Peter, um, having a hallucination is really, it just does not reflect the actual history of Christianity's spread. 
So, and we can confirm that with undisputed letters from Paul, even tying one hand behind her back and only using these letters show that the history of Christianity spreading is way different than what Paul G would say. So thank you for sharing that because that's, that's a conclusive recap of what happens in Acts. Of course, it's consistent with what happens in Acts. Now, Apology and other scholars reject Acts, but Acts has the history of the church. So we would um, call that consistency good, that it's consistent history. And also here's that same history repeated in an undisputed letter. So let's not dispute the fact that this is the Christian claim. All right. Well, that's why we have found our cause in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Hopefully you found this episode interesting and useful. I've been Michael Blair behind the machine. And to my virtual front first has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And to his right has been... Theodore, under the PC, the person of Christ. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. But that's just audio. If you want to see our video episodes, you have to go to facebook.com forward slash foundcause. Or, because we're posting on YouTube first now, you can go to YouTube and search foundcause and look at us there. We're also on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you might find your podcast. So until next time, when we do something completely different, a reaction video, I'm sure. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.